inventors and their inventions. Welcome to Radio Cade, a podcast from the Cade Museum for Creativity and Invention in Gainesville, Florida. The museum is named after James Robert Cade, who invented Gatorade in 1965. My name is Richard Miles. We'll introduce you to inventors and the things that motivate them. We'll learn about their personal stories, how their inventions work, and how their ideas get from the laboratory to the marketplace. Where does creativity live in the brain and why does it matter? Welcome to Radio Cade. I'm your host, Richard Miles. Today, I'm talking to Rex Young, a clinical professor of neurosurgery at the University of New Mexico, a research scientist at the Mind Research Network, and a practicing clinical neuropsychologist in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Dr. Young studies both brain disease and what the brain does well, a field of research known as positive neuroscience. Welcome to Radio Cade, Rex. Thanks for having me. So you have done a lot of fascinating research in a lot of very interesting areas, including traumatic brain injury, lupus, schizophrenia, intelligence, and creativity. So Rex, we can either make this the first of 18 episodes on your work, or we can pick one. So I say, let's talk about creativity, if that's okay with you. Sounds good. <laughs> so I took a look at some of your recent research on creativity, and and one thing that jumped out to me as a layman, I don't have any special expertise in the background, was your use of tests to determine baseline levels of creativity. I noticed that you mentioned something called the Creative Achievement Questionnaire, and you also use something called a Musical Creativity Questionnaire. So we can start with what your working definition of creativity is, which I assume these things measure, these tests measure, and then tell us how were those tests developed? How do you know they're accurate? And then how do they differ from other tests that have been around, for instance, the test on divergent thinking? So at the onset, I should say that as a neuropsychologist, I'm very keenly aware of test reliability and validity. And the tests in creative cognition are universally somewhat crappy. That's not a technical term, but it is a term that kind of captures the fact that we've only been trying to capture this construct in the last 50, 70 years and only really aggressively trying to study this in the last 10 or 15. So we inherit measures that came to us from the past. And the Creative Achievement Questionnaire, as you mentioned first, is perhaps one of the better of these. It, it just measures your achievements in 10 different domains. It was a test created by Dr. Carson at Harvard, I believe, and it really quantifies or attempts to quantify creative cognition across things from most generally in the sciences and the arts, more specifically in things like inventions versus culinary arts. So it really quantifies things across those domains. To answer a different part of your question, the definition is not one of mine of creativity, but one inherited from Dr. Stein in the 1950s, who defined creativity as the production of something novel and useful. And that dichotomy is really interesting, looking at novelty on the one hand, utility on the other, and there arises from that brain mechanisms that could tap 
novelty versus utility. And finally, your mention of divergent thinking is one of the measures of novelty generation that has been used since the 1950s, and that is okay, but not the only measure. I'm, I'm hopeful as we move forward in this field that we can develop better metrics and measures of creative cognition. Well, that helps a lot, Rex. And creativity, on one hand, is very popular in that people like to talk about creativity in terms of musicians and artists and what makes them tick. But it seems like there are also a lot of fairly common misconceptions about how creativity actually works in the brain. Like, oh, well, creative people, they're using their right brain and it's uncreative people using their left brain and that sort of stuff. How definitively does the research show that those conceptions, misconceptions are either Seriously, inaccurate or flat out wrong. The way it works in the brain for most people is sort of a black box, right? They just think something happens in there. Some of us are creative, some are not. What does the research show in terms of how it actually is working neurologically? I'll correct a misconception that just arose in your description of that. Some of us are creative and some of us are not. I think in my research and in my hypothesizing about creativity, it is clear to me and research our research and other research supports this, that creativity is a type of problem solving. And so everyone has to have that at some level. It's either more or less of it. And if creativity is a type of problem solving for very low incident problems, it is valuable in the fact that we are able to think outside the box and come up with something novel and useful that would address problem that is less prevalent in our day-to-day -day life. I like to think about creativity as being somewhat dichotomous, but overlapping with a construct of intelligence, where it's also a type of problem solving, but it's problem solving for things that happen on a more regular basis, as opposed to once in a hundred years with a hundred year flood, for example. What am I going to do? My house is going to be underwater. I need to figure out something really novel and useful to get out of this particular situation. So there are a number of what we call neuromythologies about creativity. And you mentioned one of them, that creativity resides in the right brain or right hemisphere. This arises from work with neurosurgeon Beery, I believe, and a neuroscientist, Gazaniga, who looked at patients that had epilepsy, and they severed the corpus callosum, which is the central connecting structures between the left and right hemisphere. And they discovered that the left and right brains function somewhat differently. The left is more logical and linear and reading and math tend to be localized in that hemisphere. And then the right hemisphere is more synthetic and adaptive and some artistic capabilities might reside more over there. So that is where this neuromythology of left brain, right brain, or right brain locus of creativity emerged from. Our research has found that, and others uh, have found, that it takes nearly your whole brain to be effectively creative. And it doesn't reside in one hemisphere or one lobe of the brain, but it's an integration of different parts of the brain that are critical to creative success. Another myth is that you have to be extremely intelligent to be creative, a genius. Einstein and Newton and Picasso and Michael Jordan are particular examples of genius in their particular domains. But as I tried to dispel the 
myth that you somewhat articulated earlier, everyone has creative capacity. It's it's a matter of more or less and how you use it and what domain you use it. But creativity in, in my conceptualization is a critical problem-solving capacity. Another myth is that you have to be kind of crazy to be creative, that there has to be some sort of neuropathology in order to express creativity. And, and we have every number of examples of the mad genius from Vincent van Gogh to John Nash, who won the Nobel Prize in economics. The movie A Beautiful Mind was formed after. There is an equal number and greater number of the obverse that no hint of neuropathology is associated with the creativity of Michelangelo or Edison. So these neuromyths prevail because we continue to view creativity as somehow elusive and a capacity that is given to us from the gods when actually it is a critical component of everyday thinking. So a lot of progress has been made generally in the field of neuroscience, particularly since the development of the functional MRI. What in particular strikes you, say, from the last couple of years in the field of creativity in neuroscience that you're excited about that points to deeper or higher levels of understanding of how creativity operates in the brain, the sort of stuff that hasn't made it yet into the popularized science articles? I'm most excited, perhaps, about the studies of interplay between intelligence and creativity. There have been special issues in neuropsychologia and one coming out in the Journal of Intelligence, which explore the interplay or overlap between intelligence and creativity, because my hypothesis is centered around these both being problem-solving capacities. It's, it's important to understand where there is overlap and where there is difference. So I'm most excited about neuropsychological and neuroimaging studies, which look at brain networks that underlie intelligent problem-solving, as opposed to, or in addition to, brain networks that are involved in creative problem-solving. And I think that will really give us some insight into whether these problem-solving capacities are rather similar. If one is hierarchically located above the other, like intelligence is very important and creativity comes from intelligence, or if they're rather disparate or different from each other, I think that is exciting research. I'm guessing that a lot of people are looking at research, your type of research that you're doing and seeing, does this have useful implication for, for instance, educators, in particular at the preschool and primary school levels? What are your preliminary conclusions or findings in terms of, are there ways that kids learn that perhaps should be changed with an eye towards enhancing their ability to learn more creatively or be more creative? I do have some preliminary ideas about this. It is very hard to translate neuroscientific research to actual life, but I think that there are some preliminary indications that there are things that we might consider doing differently. One thing that I usually recommend is adequate time for downtime that lets your brain meander or cogitate or think about ideas in a very non-linear way. And so the best example I have for this is from my own life, where I think one of the most valuable classes for me in elementary school was recess. And uh, so recess, what is it? Just play or is there something else going on? And I think there's something very important going on where people are taking the knowledge that they learned in the classroom, in their life, and being more playful with it. 
and more nonlinear with it. And so that downtime, I think, is incredibly important. I know hearing stories from the students and teachers, our pre-COVID educational paradigm was centered around a lot of homework and a lot of knowledge acquisition, which is an important aspect of creativity and intelligence and learning, but not the only one. There has to be time to put ideas together in novel and useful ways that requires a different approach and requires a more relaxed approach than is provided by just drilling towards knowledge acquisition and testing. So this may be an example of actually where a popular conception gets it right. When you think about these stories of the Eureka, you know, Archimedes in the bathtub, where after a period of relaxation, or like you said, the mind wandering and meandering, they hit upon or the circuits come together and they have this insight, but obviously based on knowledge they already possessed, right? Most of the people who have these insights are (laughs) happen to be experts in the field. Yeah, you have to have something in your brain to put together in a novel and useful way. So there is a knowledge acquisition part that is critically important to gather the raw materials necessary to be creative. But then Archimedes is perhaps the best example of sitting in the bathtub and figuring out how you would measure the amount of gold in a crown and water dispersion and Eureka, I have it, where you have figured out a way to measure something in a very non-intuitive way. And so that downtime And oftentimes people describe this arising from taking a bath or a long walk or a run or doing something that is very non-cognitive where ideas are jumbling around and merging in unique ways and even sleep where they can come up with an idea that otherwise would have been elusive. So one problem I face is that my wife has all of her creative ideas right as I'm about to go to sleep and she wants to tell me about them. And then (laughs) we've learned how to solve that problem. I say, no, tell me in the morning because I can't deal with your creative idea right now. It's interesting because she is telling you those ideas right before she falls asleep when her mind is in a very relaxed state, when the day's tasks are behind her. Frankly, a perfect time to explore those, but perhaps she should explore those on her own because there's no no one size fits all. Yeah. The unfair thing is she can tell me the idea and fall asleep and I solve the problem in my head and I can't fall asleep. (laughs) Yeah, you'll take up that idea and really start working it and then not be able to go to sleep. So, exactly. um, And that's an important thing to consider, too, is that there are different creative styles. And some people really want to offload, if you will, like some of those creative ideas before she falls asleep. But then other people really want to work them and form them and look at them from different angles. And that's a creative process, too, is to really be deliberative about that creative process. And there's major theories that talk about spontaneous versus more deliberate creativity. And it sounds like you and your wife are matched well in that you have complementary styles, but she should perhaps write those down and then you can start working on them in the morning. Well, I was going to say that most of my creative thoughts used to happen when I'd go running. An idea would pop in my head, but it just occurred to me that for the last year or so, I listen to podcasts instead while I run and I actually don't have as many creative ideas, right? Because my mind is distracted listening to the story or to people talk. It's working on information. Yeah. And not on your internal internal process. 
So, Rex, one thing I think you can probably say about Americans in general is that there's this tremendous thirst for anything related to self-improvement and self-help. So in the realm of creativity, you sometimes hear versions of this, particularly people of my age, mid to late 50s. You know, you can rewire your brain, you can teach yourself new things, stave off dementia and so on. And again, I'm not asking you to speculate too much, but is there anything in your findings that provide ammunition for those who say, hey, we can all rewire our brains and become Picasso? Or is it more in the direction of, sorry, buddy, you're too old and set in your age, so just keep <laughs> playing golf and watching reruns? Is there any way for those later in life, let's say middle age and beyond, do they still have a significant ability to increase their level of creativity? Yeah. So I think neither of those things are true in their extreme. You can neither massively rewire your brain to be something that it has not developed to be over decades nor is it hopeless on the other side of the spectrum. But I think some middle ground is probably appropriate. I mean, we know that the brain is incredibly plastic when we are infants and learning things and acquiring new information and forming neural networks that underlie language and visual processing, motor processing. That decreases over the lifespan. And it decreases in known ways the capacity to change your brain by changing your mind. And while you can modulate your brain function through concerted effort, that becomes harder over time. So if you are making a decision to make a major change in your life in your 50s, and you and I sound like we're the same age, although you're quite a bit less gray than I, <laughs> I would say it's going to take a bit more effort. And a concerted effort to do that. And that while the fantasy or hype about neuroplasticity would imply that we can completely change our brain by doing this different thing, that's probably more a factor of one, two, three percent change in terms of cognitive capacity. So I would encourage people at any age, and I think as our brains change in our 50s and up, there is more of an opportunity to make more disparate connections than we would when we were younger. And we had many more tasks in front of us. You were talking about listening to podcasts on your runs. And yeah, that changes your run from a freewheeling kind of associative process to a knowledge acquisition process. And it's going to be significantly harder to do that creative thing when you are consuming the creative product of other people and learning. So it's important to do both learning and creative expression simultaneously, but that has to be balanced. And in older people like you and me, I think that's really critical to set aside time to do nothing or do less or not acquire knowledge anymore, but extrapolate. That would be my best advice. I've read a couple of good articles in the popular press, and I'm sure you've probably seen them too, hypothesizing the connection between boredom and creativity, and particularly in young kids, right? When you're bored is where you think of perhaps a fantasy game, or you tell a story to yourself or make up a story because you just want to occupy your mind. But if your mind is occupied, as you said, with a TV show or a video game or whatnot, you're probably less likely to find the need to create something in your own head. Yeah. Boredom is kind of the bane of our modern existence. People talk about it as a bad thing, but it actually is an important aspect of our lives that force us or invite us to use our brains in ways that can transcend our 
current experience. We can imagine. I mean, I can go anywhere in my mind's eye from countries that I visited in the past to traveling to different planets in the galaxy. I can imagine just about anything. And boredom invites us to use our imaginative ability to create different realities and create different ideas that might not have existed before. So I guess I have to be careful how far I take this example, because then, of course, people go, well, I'm not going to listen to your podcast, because (laughs) then you're going to distract me from thinking great thoughts. So we got to keep this within reason. (laughs) Well, it's a both thing. Like I said, I I listen to the podcast to acquire knowledge, but then find some recess time to do your own thing and to put those ideas that you've acquired together in novel and useful ways. And I think that is the correct balance as far as the literature would suggest. So Rex, I always like to ask all my guests a little bit about themselves and their background. And you're originally from Boulder, Colorado. Your mother was a technical writer. Your dad was a hospital administrator. So first question, what was it like to grow up in Boulder? I've only been once or maybe twice. And what was your first clue that you would be spending your career studying the brain? Well, that's a big question, but I loved growing up in Boulder. Boulder was a fantastic, rich environment of very diverse kind of experiences from Buddhism and the Naropa Institute to high-tech centers of engineering and NCAR is their National Center for Atmospheric Research. I mean, just a real smorgasbord, if you will, of opportunities to see different ways that one might want to spend one's intellectual life. Unfortunately, I chose as my undergraduate degree, well, I don't know if it's unfortunate, it's hard to say. I studied finance, business, and got a degree and went into the business world and was not super happy about the intellectual opportunities for me in the world that I had chosen. So I quit that job, started volunteering for Special Olympics with friends of mine, and really became interested in brain structure and function in brains that work well and brains that work differently and really started to pursue the path of you know what's going on in these brains and what is happening to create an individual who is intellectually disabled but has incredible artistic capabilities and i'm not talking about the art that your children produce that you put up on the refrigerator but alonzo clemens who is an autistic savant creating just massively technically detailed representations of animals that will sell for thousands and thousands of dollars. These brains are fascinating in their variability. And I wanted to go into studies and a career that looked at that. And that's kind of what brought me here all these many years later. Growing up in Colorado, were you outdoorsy? Were you a ski bomb? Did you do a lot of hiking or how has that sort of influenced you? I wasn't an anything bum, but I really enjoyed camping and going out on my own and camping on the Continental Divide in Colorado and did a lot of that. So a lot of time to think I would bring, I have this somewhat embarrassing book, a memory of bringing Dante's Inferno to read while I was camping on the Continental Divide. And then this lightning storm almost killed me. And I thought I was going to go straight to hell. So, uh, I mean, really a lot of time to be by myself, to look at the stars to revel in natural beauty of Colorado. I skied, I hiked, I ran, I did all of the things, but I wasn't a bum of any of those. I wasn't expert in really any of those, but I just really love growing up in Colorado and have very fond memories now that I've brought to New Mexico, a lot of natural beauty here, fewer people. I'm an outdoors guy, I guess, at my root. 
Yeah, one thing we always tell foreign friends or foreign visitors, you really have not experienced the United States unless you've had a chance to drive out west. Long distances for long periods of time. And then you really appreciate the profound nature of our country in terms of physical beauty and, and so on. I totally agree. And most people who visit us from foreign countries spend time in LA or New York or maybe Florida at Disney World, but there's a vast opportunity to explore something on a more meandering route through the middle parts of the country. And the West is certainly got a big place in my heart. So Rex, final question, I'll allow you to be a little bit philosophical here, a lot philosophical if you'd like, but being a pioneer and researcher sounds really cool to most people. But by definition, people in your field or people like you are studying things that haven't been studied very much and reaching conclusions that may seriously undermine conventional wisdom. So you're at the age, as you said, where you start getting asked for advice by younger researchers or students and so on, and who may be in the process of picking a career or picking a field. What do you say about that subject or that potential obstacle that there are a lot of fields now which they're going to probably encounter, particularly research fields, encounter resistance or criticism of some sort. How do you prepare them for that, that it's not just all pulling down awards and citations and accolades? Some of it can be serious resistance or criticism. It's a very good point. And I can't say that my journey has been peaches and cream throughout the way. I mean, I was told by my graduate advisor, I was studying intelligence at the time, that that would destroy my career. I should stop that immediately and pick something more conventional. Otherwise, I would not be a successful researcher. I'm glad I didn't take that advice. It's good advice. There's two paths that I've seen in being a successful researcher. One is a very deliberate and somewhat obsessive path of just hammering out the details of a concept that has been discovered previously. This is called normal science. And I think a lot of good work comes out of that. And it depends on your personality style. If you're a very conscientious and somewhat agreeable person, you will do very well in writing grant after grant after grant that gets rejected until the one gets accepted. And you can do very good work in that area, but you have to be extremely conscientious and extremely agreeable because it is a field that rewards conformity. There's another path, and I think it's the path that I've chosen. I may be deluding myself, but it is a path where you really identify what you feel passionate about and what you feel excited about studying. And these are more paradigm-shifting ideas or revolutionary ideas from the Thomas Kuhn nomenclature. And it can be very rewarding, but it's a less successful path. You will always have to fight against opposition and granting and funding agencies that are not willing to take risks. But if you have excitement and passion about your work, and less conscientiousness and agreeableness, frankly, uh, you can succeed. And I think I've had some measure of success in my career that has been rather unconventional. You should always have in your back pocket studying something conventional. And you talked about my studies in traumatic brain injury and lupus and schizophrenia, but there should be some passionate involvement with these issues that allow you to go back and forth between your true passion and something that keeps you funded. So I think those are the two major paths for researchers. Neither of them are right or wrong. Both of them involve incredible amounts of work, but one involves something that you really get excited to wake up every day and do, and the other involves being extremely persistent over long periods of time. 
So your secret is to be unpleasant and annoying. <laughs> I'm sticking with that. Your words, not mine. I'm sorry. I, I, that was a cheap shot. No, I was going to say, Rex, so the way you described it, we interview a lot of inventors and entrepreneurs on the show. And when we ask them, like, why did you stick with this idea or this business? And a lot of times they say a version of, you know, if I didn't believe in it, it would be too hard. At a certain point in their journey, they could objectively say, or have said to them, this isn't worth it. And so a number have said across different types of fields that, you know, it's just resilience. It's the ability to just hang in there and keep going is what explains my success. Now, there are all a bunch of other factors, obviously, that contribute, but that's refusal to give up, but not be delusional about it, right? <laughs> I started to have a trickle of success, and then I had a stream of success, and then I had a flood of success by identifying this area that hadn't been explored before, creative neuroscience, and really starting to work the problem. And I felt really passionate about it. And no NIH funding out there for that. There's very little NSF funding. I found the Templeton Foundation, which was willing to fund this crazy idea that I had. And it yielded dozens of publications and other grants. And now a new generation is taking the mantle and really starting to explore the limits of creativity, neuroscience. And I couldn't be more pleased with my stubbornness. <laughs> Well, and it really points to the importance of seed funding, right? Again, you see similar parallels in the business world. If one person can manage to make significant progress, then they themselves might not reap all the rewards or the riches, but they have taken the knowledge or taken the research to another level so that other people can then capitalize on that. We had one of our inventors say, you know, the most important thing about a patent is not that you're going to be able to cash in the patent and get rich, but you have added to the body of knowledge. So you've made things in a sense easier for people coming after you because you've solved a piece of the puzzle. And they can now use your research to maybe go on and carry that down the road. And once they put it like that, I go, you know, that makes total sense because most researchers who get patents don't get rich. <laughs> they get a certificate. I have a patent. I'm not rich. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. But yet they know that they have solidly advanced their field of knowledge and that other people can use this in a constructive way, may use it in a constructive way. It couldn't be better said. You really are carving out uh, an idea space that you know that you can't solve yourself and that will rely on others to take up the mantle. And I'm very happy in this field and in both intelligence and creativity that a number of people will become excited about this area of research and can find it to be productive in terms of their grant applications and scholarly activity. And it's enormously rewarding to know that I and other people was a part in starting this process. Well, Rex, it's a great note to end on. And as I said, this is actually just part one of an 18-part series on the life and times of Rex Young. Really enjoyed having you on the show. I hope we can have you back at some point. I learned a lot, and I hope this was fun for you. It was great. Thank you for the opportunity. I really enjoyed talking to you. And this audience is particularly important with entrepreneurs and idea generators. I think it's a perfect opportunity. Thanks. Thank you. Radio Cade is produced by the Cade Museum for Creativity and Invention, located in Gainesville, Florida. Richard Miles is the podcast host, and Ellie Tom coordinates inventor interviews. Podcasts are recorded at Hardwood Soundstage and edited and mixed by Bob McPeak. The Radio Cade theme song was produced and performed by Tracy Collins and features violinist Jacob Lawson. 